You're listening to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Wednesday, February 8th, 2017, and this is your host, Stephen Novella. Joining me this week are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Kara Santamaria. Howdy. Jay Novella. Hey, guys. And Evan Bernstein. Hey, everyone. So, I have two, mm-hmm. two questions for you guys. Go okay. Ahead. Which of you watched the Super Bowl and who stayed up to the very end? Uh, yes and yes. No, yes no. And yes. <laughs> yes and no. Oh, Jay. Jay, you missed the only part that mattered. I don't blame you, Jay. I think a I lot of people you. did this. End of the third quarter. Mark I'm Wahlberg tired. did it. Yeah. I'm like, I turn to my wife. I'm like, you know what? This sucks. I don't need it to watch the suck. end of this. And we shut the TV off, right? My wife wakes me up at midnight and goes, Jay, they won. I'm like, I'm like no <laughs> shit they won. They were killing them the whole night no. she goes no the pats won i'm like what so we we fully become awake mm. and watch the play-by-play we, we we found a youtube video that showed the highlights and what a game wow yeah so for, for our listeners who may not be aware the the super bowl <laughs> was between the atlanta falcons and the new england patriots the falcons were up at in the third quarter they were up 28 to three. to three by 25 points prior to this in the Super Bowl, the biggest comeback was from being un- down by 10 points. It happened three times, but 10 points was the biggest deficit any team came back to win in the Super Bowl. The Pats were down by 25 points. And so you, th- and it's only like they got, they got a quarter and a half or whatever left. And right. yeah, you're thinking there's just no way. And then right. the, odds are against them. Then no the way. odds were against them. And they were, and they were, they were broad. And uh, some places were tweeting the odds as the game was progressing. And at that point, the Falcons had a 92% chance to win the Super oh, Bowl yeah. at and, that point. But New England ground their way back. And it was amazing. You know, they score a touchdown. Then they miss the extra point. And you're like, oh, nothing's going their way tonight. Then what? They get a field goal. Then they get two. They had to, they had to score two touchdowns and they had to get a two point conversion on both of them to tie the game. They do it. They get both mm. two point conversions. Then they win the, the coin toss and they, they score on their first drive. And they win the Super Bowl, and it was unbelievable. It was incredible. That was a shock. I remember saying at one point, I would bet five hundred dollars that the that the Falcons were are going to win because it was like, of course, you of course know, yeah. it seemed yeah. obvious, right? I would have bet more than Anyone that. Would. Those are ninety two percent odds are great. Anyone nobody, would. nobody took me up on well, that. Okay. So two things here. One, there were obviously many parallels that people were um, tweeting and otherwise social mediaing about our recent election and this football game. Many parallels. So that was quite interesting. The second thing I'm interested in, because you guys live in Connecticut, that is New England, right? Is that considered oh, yeah. New England? Okay. Oh, yeah. Oh, yes. Are you actually Patriots fans? Because I have never met a single person that is a Patriots fan. Oh, I, I've been a Patriots fan since the 1980s. Really? Because Absolutely. they're like one of the most reviled teams in the no, NFL. No, don't believe it. That's yes, not they true. Are. <laughs> no, come on. See, well, they are. They've had their, they've had their they share are. of controversy. They've done some sketchy shit, man. Come on. <laughs> so listen, the reality is, and this is coming from a Pats fan, is that Belichick and Tom Brady are an epic team. Brady mm-hmm. is probably the best quarterback ever in the NFL. I think arguably, that's a, sure. It's arguably, it's perfectly reasonable. Yes. The first they, three quarters belied that fact. That's not true. And that's not true. And I'm going to tell you. Let me tell you. You couldn't what, hit shit. 
<laughs> no, you're wrong. You're absolutely wrong. And let me tell you what I want to talk about. about and, <laughs> and there is actually – I also made an analogy to the election. And what I want to talk about is hindsight bias and how mm. once you know the outcome, that governs your narrative. And then people invent an explanation to explain the outcome even though the outcome was quirky. So right. – and football is an interesting example of this because – you know, football is – there's two things going on. There's how the teams are playing, you know, down by down and then how many how many points they're scoring. And sometimes those two things are not the same, right? So if you really looked at how they were playing, New England was playing fine. New England and the, and the Falcons were both playing like Super Bowl teams. The Falcons were definitely playing better than the Pats early on. They were, they had a better running game, uh, and they were, they were just, you know, better on defense than, than the yep, Patriots. Yeah, got a big were. turnover early. Yep. Yeah. But that's the thing that, that one turnover, right? They, they, they caught, uh, there was an interception that they ran back for a touchdown. So it's very possible that if it weren't for that one play, the score wouldn't have been 21-0 at that point, but it would have been 14-7, right? Mm -hmm. So that's yeah, a huge disparity based upon one single play. But then everyone bases their narrative about how the teams are doing based on the 21-0, not really on how they're playing overall. And that sure. is quirky. Then what happens – the Patriots come back. Of course they come back because they're the Patriots because they're a great team. They didn't give up. And I, give, I really give them credit for keeping their head in the game, continuing to work the game. Basically, the, that, that comeback was regression to the mean. That's all it was. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, yes, there could actually be – so because the football games are like games of chess and Belichick is a master. So you could argue that he was – you know, more experienced and better at making adjustments. And he actually got better throughout the game, better than the Falcons did. Sure. The Falcons had some injuries. They lost some players that could have played a role. Sure. But I think it's 90% regression to the mean. Um, just, they just, the, the, the lucky breaks all went the Falcons way for two and a half quarters. And then they all went, or most of them went New England's way in that last quarter. And so what you have is a statistical outlier. That's it. Yeah. That's, That's it. Right. I'm, let's face it. It came down to a coin toss, really, at, at the, the very end, end. At the end, arguably, absolutely. Who so, got the ball first? So this whole uh, – and and let me expand on that. I think that the notion of momentum in football is bullshit. I think that is mostly nonsense. It is a narrative we impose on what has happened based upon this hindsight bias of thinking that whatever happened was inevitable, right? Yeah, and but Steve – There's a specific explanation for I, I it. I think the mood – of the player and the attitude of the player has an effect on the quality of your performance. I mean, and I think I you're wrong, and I think you're wrong. And I'll tell you why. I think right. maybe you have a point if you're talking about high school football, but when you're playing at a professional level, at an NFL level, I think all of those psychological things and other intangible factors are very small because they're professionals. Uh, and they're trained. Yeah, it's trained. very, very tiny. And so that's what I'm saying. You're looking for an explanation like that for, for what is essentially a statistical fluke. Just the breaks went one way in the first half, and they went, rather than being more, it's a 
drunken walk that happened to be skewed one way <laughs> and then it skewed the other way. And so we, we invent this narrative about a massive comeback and what they did and what it means. It's all nonsense. It's just us imposing a story on randomness. That's what it is. And the truth is. is, a Super Bowl outcome shouldn't be a big gap. It should be a tight game every game. It should yeah. be, it could have gone either way because they're the two best teams in the league. Supposedly, they're the two right? Yeah, supposedly. Unless there was a reason during the regular season that two unmatched teams yeah. ended up in the Super Bowl. The idea is that these two teams are going to be neck and neck. I know nothing about sports. I'm going to go ahead and put that out there. But I did find a really interesting article on Snopes right after the Super Bowl. Usually Snopes like debunks things, right? Did this actually happen? No, it didn't. They're fact checkers. But um, this article actually said that, yes, after this is this is there's truth in this claim after the Super Bowl. Ac- car accident rates spike mm. in the state where people lost. The increase is actually 68% right after the game and only 6% in the state where people win. Yeah. Um, deaths were up, car accidents wow. jump, and also injuries from car accidents jump across the board. Is yeah. that interesting? Right. Steve, I don't, I don't agree with you. You hell? can't tell me that <laughs> 30-something-foot-year-old football players have mastered they're freaking emotions. What are they, Jedi? I mean, get a grip, dude. No, I think they're, what they are, they're, what they are never more say, afraid or excited in their life than entering that arena. But maybe, their maybe. skills are so honed. Like, they're so practiced. Yeah, they're so the best football players become, in the world, Jay. And so I mean, much of it on. has become automatic, you know? That's what makes you good at anything. If you're, an, if you're a concert pianist, if you're a, uh, an expert football player, it's that you've put most of the activity into the, into the automation portion of um, practice, and you're only focusing on these little nuanced things that improve your game fractions of a percent. Yeah, it's just, it's just, I don't, I don't think it's a measurable effect. So that, that's what I'm saying. What? When you, when you All get right, to the well. top level, cutting edge, pushing it against the wall. Of human ability, professional sports, all of these little things, I don't think they matter. That's okay. a, and that's what the evidence shows. If you look at studies looking at, there is no momentum right, at, no, in professional no, no. sports. It's yeah. all statistical noise. That's all yeah, it is. And we Steve, look, you go to, the, keep going to these fake news sites and you're going to find whatever you want to find, man. <laughs> <laughs> so I mean, think about it. At the end, at the end of the day, it was a close score. Now, if they had traded touchdowns and scores rather than the Falcons winning all of the, theirs and then New England winning all of theirs that you know we wouldn't have this narrative but those are that's just flipping a you know it's like oh, so, I flipped five heads in a row then yeah. I flipped five tails in a row why did that happen because it's random and you did it 51 times and that was an <laughs> that's why now getting to the the analogy to the election I think it's similar oh, right mm. because we have the electoral Hindsight. college right so you have mm. Uh, a small difference in the in the popular vote in a few states can give a huge difference in the electoral college. So that's essentially what happened this time. You know, Hillary Clinton won the popular vote by 2.9 million votes. Donald Trump won a solid electoral college victory, but he but you know, based upon narrow victories in three states, in three swing states, that you know, if you if they went the other way, if you change 80,000 votes, then Hillary would have won. But but sure. because Trump won, the narrative became about why he won. You know what I mean? Mm. And even though if the if the voting happened a week earlier or a week later or, if, you know, if whatever, if there was little differences, the this binary outcome, you know, obviously one person has to win, one person has to lose. But it was just interesting to listen to, like, you know, everything he did led to his victory. 
right? And and was therefore sort of almost destined for him to win because of all those factors and everything. But if he had just lost by a little bit in those states, then the narrative would have completely flipped and he never would have had a chance and everything he did failed and Hillary yeah. wasn't right. You know yeah, I mean? of course. Hindsight is definitely there. It's hindsight bias. Yeah. Let's get on with our show. Kara, what's the word this week? The word this week is impedance. Impedance is a deceptively complicated word. (laughs) So let's get into it. All right, Merriam-Webster, right off the bat, simplest uh, definition you could come up with, something that impedes. Okay, sure, but that's not the impedance that we're talking about. We're talking about the, quote, apparent opposition in an electrical circuit to the flow of an alternating current that's analogous to the actual electrical resistance to the direct current, and that's the ratio of effective electromotive force to the effective current. The ratio, or in other words, the ratio of the pressure to the volume displacement at a given surface in a sound transmitting medium. Okay, so that was one in, in a circuit, that was it in a, in a sound transmitting medium. Oxford says something similar, the effective resistance of an electric circuit or component to alternating current arising from the combined effects of ohmic resistance and reactance. Okay, that probably means nothing to a lot of people. So I think it's important to break it down. And the best way to break it down is to ensure that we understand the basic difference between AC and DC. Everybody here on the show likely does, but that doesn't mean that everybody listening does. So if you remember the famous fights between Tesla and Edison, you may remember direct current and alternating current. Direct current came about first. It was the gold standard, and it's what a lot of people thought that most of our electrical infrastructure was going to be built upon. It was Edison's baby. He made a lot of money off of it. And then alternating current came about. They said it couldn't be done. Tesla figured out how to do it. And um, it really threw a wrench in a lot of things. But ultimately, our lives are much better for it. The main difference is really implicit in the name, right? Direct current flows in one direction directly. Alternating current switches and goes back, switches and goes back. It changes direction periodically. And Do you know what the frequency that, is? Uh, so, oh, wait. Something, something. Uh, it's in hertz. It's 60? 60 hertz. 60. Is that right? 60 hertz. Yeah. Yeah, that's, 60. Amber, right, yeah that's in your – Yes. Well Go and you know that if you deal with electri- electrical equipment, which I do all the time, yeah. you know that because like if you're anywhere you know, around technology, <laughs> there is a 60 hertz, 60 hertz artifact. Yep. Yeah, there's 60 hertz <laughs> noise everywhere. Yeah. That's how I yeah. remember it was from working in electrophysiology because we're looking at micro volts, right? We're looking at little yeah. tiny measurements and you would have 60 hertz noise and everything so you'd have to build a faraday cage and you'd have to like subtract it from yeah there's a filter you have a 60 hertz filter yeah bandpass filter yeah filters out yeah so so yeah so that's a main difference obviously i could dig into this much deeper but that's kind of a general difference between alternating current and direct current so what is impedance then well impedance is necessary as you heard in those definitions impedance is a measurement that we use in alternating current systems in direct current systems it's pretty easy to just call it resistance so when you look at a basic um circuit uh, electrons flow from from the power source all the way through and that it continues to cycle and then you'll sometimes see things built in like capacitors and resistors and all these different things that help stop the current slow down the current hold on to the current and to change the outcome if a resistor is in a uh, dc current or a dc circuit you can measure its resistance. It's it's that simple. But in an alternating current circuit, because of the way that the electricity flows and because there are a lot of other um, factors to measure, we actually measure overall resistance. So not just from the resistor itself, but from the capacitors, from everything that's there. We measure that as something called impedance. 
Now, I'm not going to give you any sort of calculations. I think that we don't need them for the level of understanding what the word impedance means. But just know that impedance is the total resistance of a circuit using alternating current. When you look at the actual etymology of the word impedance, it um, it really does translate to hindrance. The first time it was used in full was in 1886, um, you know, as that real definition, resistance due to induction in an electrical circuit. But if you start to break it down, you actually see that the word has these individual roots. Like when we look at impede, what do you think impede literally translates to in Latin? To get in the way of. Stop. So what, what does peed mean? A walk. Peed. Peed. Oh, walk. Yeah. Head. Feet. Foot. It's literally to shackle the feet. Shackle the feet. To cool. impede is to shackle the feet, which All makes right. sense. That's okay. how you hinder. Sure. That's how you detain. And so overall, impedance is this hindrance, this resistance. It's pretty interesting. Okay, Bob, actually, first news item comes back to the Super Bowl, but we're not going to talk about the game itself. We're going to talk about what? the halftime show. So, yeah, I mean, this this is the reason – this is primarily the reason why I watch and enjoy the Super Bowl. It's for the commercials and for the halftime show. Uh, this, this year just got lucky to have an amazing, an amazing game to also enjoy. So yeah, so the Super Bowl 51 halftime show. It's a lot of fun. I really enjoyed it, but something really caught my eye. Now, it wasn't a wardrobe malfunction or an awesomely goofy left shark. It wasn't that <laughs> either. Um, it was those lights in the sky when Lady Gaga was on the dome. I couldn't figure out what the hell they were at first. I, I think I even said out loud, is that a special effect? Like I meant like maybe it was like a digitally a, like added a, later, yeah. a broadcast yeah. overlay That's to enhance it. And like, you know, like China did for the Olympics. Remember that hubbub where they, yeah, uh, uh-huh. I mean, China did an amazing, unprecedented job. But I remember, uh, in the buildup, they, they had scenes where they, they like, uh, they digitally like added things like fireworks and stuff that weren't there. It's like, oh man, that's not cool. I mean, it looked awesome, but it, I don't think they were forthcoming. So no, they, these were drones. These were real drones. 300 of them and they were so cool first they look like stars in the sky and that's where i was like what the hell is that because that does not look right then they morphed into an american flag and then eventually they turned into a pepsi logo of course so <laughs> i i became so curious what is the story behind that so uh some interesting things they they were birthed at Intel, and they're called shooting star drones. I think you could say they, they use the shooting star technology. Uh, they're controlled by computer, obviously, and one person, or actually two people, and but only one of those people, one of those persons is a, just a backup. I mean, you just need one person to run this whole show. So they can move into in any pre-programmed pattern, and their L- LED lights can take on billions of different light patterns. Really complex imagery uh, to, to a certain extent, with as much as you can get with 300 drones and lots of different color options so uh, the drone itself is a foot long kind of square it's made of foam and plastic uh very light 280 grams and it can fly for 20 minutes which is uh which is you know, enough for a lot of different applications uh one claim they made was interesting they said that if one of the drones experienced problems and dropped out that they have a replacement drone that could take its place as a stand-in within seconds and uh, I was like, wait a second, within seconds? That's pretty impressive. Uh, I think it would take more than just a few seconds for them to do that. But I was thinking, did, I wonder if they actually had a handful of drones like in the air. Not illuminated. In the right. air, right. Not lit, ready to pop in. Yeah, and that would, make, sure. that would make a lot of yeah, sense. Yeah, that would make sense. They, Put they, it they right in position, be, go. Yeah, they would, be, they would be kind of invisible unless they occluded 
another drone. Uh, that could be a little bit annoying. But so, yeah. So, but the big reveal, the big reveal though, was that the drone segment that we all saw watching, uh, wasn't, was filmed a week earlier and no one uh. actually saw a single drone during huh. the Super Bowl when you were on site. Um, and this, of course, is because got cheated. because of the restrictions on drones, crazy, crazy restrictions. And there's a bunch of them. So first of all, the Federal Aviation Association has regulations. Uh, they they ban drones within 34.5 miles of the <laughs> of the stadium on game day. So on game okay. day, you can't get within a, almost 35 miles. But wait, um, don't they use drones to film? Um, well, those those are those are like tethered. Those are wired. Yeah, they're drones. on wires. Oh, gotcha. They're not, okay. they're not free. They're not free. They're not going to let a drones flying around um, with eighty. You know what is it? Eighty thousand people uh, underneath. That, that's not going to happen. Apparently. So uh, so you've got that restriction, and that was the ultimate restriction. They could not be there on game day. So that was it. They had to film it a, a earlier. Um, so then they still needed a special waiver from the FAA to fly the drone. 700 feet in the air. I think this is one of the highest drone shows ever done. So they needed a special waiver just to go that high. So that's one. And then they needed yet an additional special waiver to fly the drones, apparently in a Class B airspace, which is much more restricted than, uh, I don't know, Class C airspaces or whatever. <laughs> so I guess, I guess that dome is in a Class B airspace. So they needed another waiver. So they had, a, they had a lot of red tape to cut through to, to, to just film there uh with the drones so so what so what they did was um lady gaga got in, in her outfit got on the dome and they filmed that little scene and then kind of when she dove into the dome they cut um not her strings of course but they cut the film and then they just kind of added it uh on on that night so it looked great what did she jump it onto bob well she just had her harness and then she just kind of Kind she of was suspended jumped down and, and then was yeah. and then was lowered onto lowered. The, onto a platform. So, what are the other uses of this thing? Well, they've they've already done 500 drones at once, which is a Guinness record. This this was 300, but they've done 500. 500. And I saw I saw some video. <laughs> I saw some video, and that was it was amazing. And also, I just found out they they just left a three week engagement at Disney World, which is wonderful because I'll be at Disney in two days, just in time to miss the drones <laughs> entirely. Thank you very much. Gods of time. Timing. Thank yeah, you, Bob. Didn't you just? Didn't your flight get canceled because of the snowstorm? Don't even get me started. Don't even get me started. I imagine them in the future using mm-hmm. these drones like fireworks, basically fireworks. Uh, but each spark of light or sky pixel, if you will, is controlled by a computer and not a, co- a colorful chemical explosion. That's really dangerous. So imagine the sky show when they have thousands or a million of these tiny drones, like like gnat sized drones, um, all you know, all flying around and doing anything you could imagine. You know, making imagery. You know, uh, kind of pretending to be fireworks, all sorts of cool stuff. They could, the drones could colorfully attack all the people on the ground. And nice. well, never mind, I'm not going to go there. They could form into a dragon and then fly That's at the people right. on the ground. So, uh, but, so, so that, but, yeah. but the cool thing, though, <laughs> yeah. is that these are these are obviously not just for entertainment or apocalyptic applications. They they could really do truly useful work, and that's where they're really going to shine. Uh, search and rescue is like a no brainer. Everyone talks about search and rescue operations. You know, imagine having hundreds of of infrared drones searching, and you know, regardless of what the terrain is, whatever the, what the time of day is, uh, they they would. Figuratively kill at that task, and they would just be custom made for that 
for that task. But they, but not just search and rescue. They could do search and destroy operations, of course, which uh, they would also be very good at. And they would literally kill at that task. Um, Escape prisoner recovery. I like that. They could do they could do three D <laughs> terrain mapping for companies and individuals, so you don't have to rely on like government satellites or anything like that. Imagine you, the applications you could do with that if you could map out your own terrain, like around your house or around your state or whatever. You could do po- wild population monitoring, which which could be really valuable to see the, the state of a various wildlife populations. And also, if you watch the Super Bowl closely, they had a, Amazon had a commercial about their drones doing Amazon Prime deliveries, which is actually being tested, I think, now in the UK. So that's that's a I mean those aren't swarms of drones it's just one drone here one there but it's still a, a, an application that a lot of people are looking forward to and I, I can't wait to get my first drone delivery I, I'm just gonna like wait outside in my front yard just like hopping up and down just looking for my drone Watch it who's come gonna, in who's gonna drop my whatever proper funky Amazon anything <laughs> that they sell so much so that's it that's what I got so that was cool those are, that was really amazing. All right. Have you guys heard about this uh, new genetically modified wheat that they're that they're planning? I on did. It's very exciting. Okay. Mm. More Franken food. Yeah. So first of all, <laughs> there there are no genetically modified wheat strains on the market right None? now. So there's no GM wheat, which is crazy None. considering yep. that like gluten quote unquote intolerance or at least gluten free dieting is like such a fad. So you know, they got, I imagine they're working on that. That would be interesting. Imagine a, a wheat that uh, people who have Could gluten sensitivity eat, yeah. or celiac disease. Could still eat. Uh, what percentage of calories consumed by humans? Thirty-eight uh, percent. Uh, I mean, forty. Uh, I'd say fifty-eight. Yeah, if you think about the old 45. food pyramid, the one that I grew up with, the whole bottom <laughs> rung was like bread. So that's how a lot of people yeah. learned. You guys are crazy. Twenty-one percent. Twenty-one. Come on, corn, yeah, rice. True. I mean, there's other Please. staples. All right. Twenty-one percent. That's still a fifth of all the calories people consume that's comes from wheat. So huge. that's huge, right? That's a lot of our food. It's a, a, why it's called a staple. So anything that could improve the the yield, the amount of wheat that we can grow on mm-hmm. a, a fixed plot of land, good could for the have environment, a huge impact on the efficiency of our farming. Could good for the environment, good for food production, for sustainable food everything production. Good. Everything is good. Now, most genetically modified crops that are that are approved and actually being grown out there are not designed to increase yields. They're designed to have other benefits. You know, the non-browning apple. Their you know uh, ease of uh, herbicide resistance. So you could use herbicides to control the weeds. Vitamin or, enhancement. Um, Vitamin enhancement, pesticide, pesticide yeah. you know, control. So better for yeah. shipping. Like still kind of better for improving. Like downstream yields, but not necessarily yields in the plot. They reduce loss, but they don't in- increase the, the yield potential of the crop. So this is one that this new one that's being that's about to be tested actually is designed to increase yield specifically, and they do that in a very interesting way by increasing the efficiency of photosynthesis. That's something we've mentioned before. It's because you know plants photosynthesis is obviously the process by which plants turn sunlight into biomass. And so it's like the ultimate rate limiting step. And if you can increase the efficiency, the amount of food they could make from the light falling on that piece of land, that could increase yield. Agricultural experts think that we're pretty much getting close to the maximum yield of wheat using conventional breeding techniques. You know, so the yield has increased dramatically in the last century, but it's, you know, we're getting diminishing returns. 
Um, they say now if like if a if a breeder develops a wheat cultivar that has a one percent yield increase, that's huge. That is a, that's a big deal. So what the what the uh, scientists did, and this is uh, done by a consortium of researchers at various universities. Uh, as well as a private company that I hadn't heard of before. Uh, Rothamsted Research is the company, but it's also funded by the Biotechnology and Biological Sciences Research Council and the United States Department of Agriculture. It's part of the International Wheat Yield Partnership Consortium. There's a, a re- very closely related grass that has an enzyme that increases the efficiency of photosynthesis. And so they took the gene from that. It's the stiff brome. You guys ever hear of the stiff brome? No. That's a, it's just it's a wild, no. it's a wild okay. grass. And they made two cultivars, one with two copies of this gene and one with six copies of this gene. And now I've heard conflicting reports. Uh, the BBC says that in glasshouse experiments, what they call greenhouse, uh-huh. they call it glasshouse. In, grease, in greenhouse experiments, the, the the increased yield was twenty to forty percent, which is massive. Yeah. However, the new scientists reported that the increase was fifteen to twenty percent. So good, half, and but still impressive. Neither of the still it's still massive. Yeah, just not as massive. Uh, neither of them provided a link to to or a citation for that figure, and I couldn't find it anywhere. So I don't know where they got it from. Probably talking to somebody at the company, but. Anyway, so there's, so it's 15 to 40% is the range. But let's take the overlap of 20%. So we'll say maybe it increases yield by about 20%. That's huge. That's a huge increase in yield. But they have to test it. They have to do field trials, right? So after like a greenhouse trial, then you got to put it out in the field under real world conditions and see how it performs there. And, you know, GM crops don't always perform as well in the real world under, you know, they, they do better under tightly controlled conditions than real world conditions. So we have to see. They just got approval to do these field trials over the next couple of years in the UK. And so that's great. So we may we may be see, if all works out well, we may be seeing uh, this wheat uh, on farms in a few years. So, uh, of course, this has sparked some protests by the anti-GMO folks. Thirty different quote unquote green organizations, uh, mainly anti-GMO organizations, have uh, filed a joint statement complaining good. to the UK about this. Yeah, so. What are their big points? What do you What do you guys guess if you haven't read it already? Jeez, I mean, how do you complain about exactly? So <laughs> this is what they say. <laughs> they have no valid point to make. Right? So what's <laughs> interesting what is that all of the usual anti-GMO troops are not in play here. There's nothing to do with Monsanto. They have they're nowhere really? near this. This is oh, good. Yeah, this, yeah, it's totally different. This is you know publicly funded, etc. This there's no no issue with insecticides or pesticides or herbicides or anything. This is okay. all about just increasing yield. Also, the gene is coming from a closely related species, not a distant species. So one of their complaints is that they have the you know the the risk of this this wheat cultivar getting out into the wild. Oh, contaminated, right? right. The, like becoming an invasive yeah. species. To and... which to which I say, who the hell cares? <laughs> <laughs> it's a it's freaking wheat everywhere. Food. Yeah, but it's Steve, wheat. It's, too much it's food. destroyed genetically modified wheat from their perspective. It's not natural. Yeah, but think about it. Think about <laughs> it. What do they imagine is going to happen? First of all, right. the gene is already out there in the wild. It's out there <laughs> in wild grasses. That's where they got it from. <laughs> 
this wheat is a crop. Crops are frail. Me- you know, you need to baby them. They don't. They don't compete well in the wild against. Weeds. I don't know, Steve. Yeah, right? Did no you see that weeds. movie Day of the Triffids or Triffids or whatever? Yeah, I mean, right. they, 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 this wheat is going to become sentient. Walk around <laughs> and try to eat people. If you think about it, even a little bit, what do they imagine is going to happen if these this wheat gets out into well, the it's gonna wild? Poison, it's going to poison. It's going to poison people. Wheat. It's just wheat. It's a grass. They don't like that it has human fingerprints on it, as opposed to it's whatever. Yeah, I know. Right? There's just there's no reason. There's no absolutely no rational. Okay, what else? Like no sensible reason. All right, that's it. That's all they got. So that's the other it? thing is. So here Ooh, we go. Scary. They say that we don't need to increase yield because we already grow enough food to feed Wrong. them. Oh, well, I hate that right. argument. And we just have Wrong. to be better oh, a, at not throwing it away. Yeah, let's wait. Come on. It's a terrible let's argument. Let's wait until we're argument. starving, and then we'll start to work on technology to increase yield. Exactly. Yeah, Stupid. Let's exactly. Not, yeah, let's, let's not anticipate uh, what we're going to need to grow for 2050. You know, we're good now. <laughs> right. Talk about yeah, short Yeah, we have to increase. But the, our, our estimates are that we will have to increase our food production by 40% in the next 20 years and 70% by 2050. So and we, by the way, only GMO is going to do that. Yeah, That's exactly. Yeah. We, have to, we have to plan for a 70% food production increase. Jeez. And you can include decreased waste in there as well. Sure, absolutely. We should decrease waste. We need to increase food distribution justice. Sure, that's all good. But they're saying like, hey, why don't we use this money to fix poverty first? Really? You're going to take the tiny amount of money being used to do these field trials and, and you're going to fix, fix poverty? poverty? <laughs> that's literally what they said. I hate it when people see solutions as being either or. Like it just doesn't make any sense. It's like saying of course it we need to approach global warming. Let's not work on carbon em- emissions. We can just only stop eating meat. It's like, no, right, let's right. try let's- all of the things. Absolutely. <laughs> It's like saying, oh, we don't need fluoride in the water. People should just brush their teeth. Yeah, that's all. <laughs> we should, people just brush, brush their teeth. Why don't people just eat? So this, <laughs> yeah. so this reminds me, this reminds me, Steve, of, of the golden rice because it's such an yeah. awesome application of the technology because how do you argue against this it's kind of stuff? And of course they are. I, I hope nobody is really taking them seriously. But these, see, these are the kinds of GMO projects we need that are such a no-brainer that it makes them look like whiny assholes. And yeah. then once we got a few of those under our belt, then the public percep- the general public perception of GMOs we will hope. be like, come on, look at what it's doing. R- you really have a problem with this? You, come on, go Bob, back to that the marginalized never area. Oh, I disagree. I disagree. This is why, listen, I'm a, I'm a science-based environmentalist. I think we should protect our environment, but you have to be intelligent about it. And there are unintended consequences if you're dumb about it. And I think, so think about what a home run this is for the environment. We get to produce more food on the same land or with less land with fewer inputs. This is a win-win for the environment. You also have to remember that we basically are using all of the arable land on the earth. You know, we can't just, there's no land to grow into. You know, we, we have to not, increase not our- good land anyway. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We, we, we want to cut down more forest. You know, the biggest impact that farming has is turning ecosystems into farmland. You know, the, the, the problem with the butterflies isn't GM. The problem with the butterflies is they have no open fields with their milk thistle because it's all cornfields. You, you, you need to preserve as much natural ecosystems as we can. And the way to do that is to maximize it, the output 
from the land we are farming. Here you have even a 20% increase in a major staple crop. And again, this, this same strategy could replicate to all kinds of crops, not just for wheat. They're already doing it in tobacco and soy. That's so a huge, that's a huge, huge point. Think about it. That could help potentially all plants that that we need and use. I mean, yeah. th- that's such a generic thing. I mean, you're not a plant if you don't have photosynthesis. And yeah. if we can improve that, that alone, that is such a huge thing that is widely applicable. So these Holy environmental crap. groups are taking an anti-environmental position because they're just ideologically anti-GMO and they can't get out of their own way. In my opinion, it's like, you know, a mindlessly opposing nuclear energy. Great. So we'll burn coal. How'd that work out for you? You know, it's the same thing. You know, you're, you're actually net harming the environment because you just have this narrow, you know, anti-technology or whatever bias or ideology. Uh, whereas instead of looking at the trade-off, the whole picture, the risk versus benefit, you know, what's the risk of this wheat gets out into the wild? It's nothing. There's no risk to the environment of this wheat yeah. getting out. Well, that's benefit. the problem, Steve. They yeah, don't huge. believe the, the basic facts. They're not even believing when, when they hear that. They yeah. don't believe it. So what do you do? Yeah, right. Well, you ignore you them. marginalize yeah, you them. Marginalize you marginalize and marginalize. And that's why we need big wins like golden rice, like the, like this with the wheat. We need big, obvious wins to marginalize them. They're never going to go away, but we got to make them insignificant nets. Evan, let me ask you a question. So I got the latest credit card replacement that I got for the mm-hmm. card that I use yep. has a chip in it. Excellent. And that's supposed to make me more secure. That's right. It is supposed to make you more secure. Is it? Right. Making you more secure. Well, yes, in one way and no, in another way. Okay. <laughs> the security chips the and security chip readers, and I think we're all familiar with that. We were all issued updated credit cards, or we should have been in the last year or so, which no longer just have a magnetic stripe on the back, but they actually have a computer chip embedded in them as a security precaution and to cut down on fraudulent activity. It has made it harder for criminals to counterfeit credit cards and debit cards, yes. However, overall rates of fraudulent credit card activity have risen since last year, according to a new study. The new study was from the research firm Javelin Strategy and Research, and they found that incidents of identity fraud rose 16% in 2016, and it cost individuals $16 billion in losses. All in all, 15.4 million victims in the United States were affected, and that's 2 million more people than in 2015. And that number, 15.4 million, represents 6.15% of all consumers. Six out of every 100 people are affected by this. And the study did not look exclusively at credit cards. Javelin said that the vast majority of identity theft fraud is linked to credit cards, though. Now, this Rise in fraud totaled $700 million more in losses than previous year. And it seems counterintuitive that you've got this new security measure in place with your credit card, yet the fraud rates are going up. We thought the electronic chips would derail criminal activity, but it didn't turn out really to be the golden key in the sense that, that it was supposed to be. Well, here's the good part. So the chips have made it harder for thieves to walk into a store and purchase goods with a counterfeit card. What the thieves would do with old cards, which only had the magnetic strips, is that they would illegally obtain the data on the strip. And that data on the strip had all the information necessary to complete purchases to no end, up to the limit of, of the credit card. 
So they would take that information, they'd make a clone of your magnetic strip credit card, and boom, they're off to they're off to go shopping. With the chip, you can't do that. It's basically not locks each transaction down to a unique electronic code that has to match. So even if you got a hold of one of the of one of these cards and tried to clone it, you know, you would get one transaction at most out of it. The rest would not would not link up. It wouldn't work. But here's the bad part, and this is has overtaken the good part. The criminals, seeing what this is, they've moved a lot of their illegal activity to online where the chips don't come into play. And if you couple that with the anonymity of the internet, which makes fraud less risky than an in-person scam where a criminal's face could be on a camera or they could be immediately apprehended by authorities, that situation doesn't exist online. So in a way, the new chips have sort of herded all the criminals into focusing on online activity with your credit cards. Thieves buy things straight online or by phone, and that fraud, that type of fraud rose 40% over the last year. So we got to protect ourselves online, but it's tough. Well, the point is, the point is uh, you know, I still understand how do they they just need the numbers on your card then. They don't need the chip. So it's just the it's just the old school way of of stealing somebody's credit card information. They also need that number on the back, right? That little number, the three. They they sometimes do and they sometimes don't. I don't know that that's become an absolute 100% standard procedure in doing that. But they always I, ask for like expiration date, you know, expiration date at least and security number. And also number. your things, zip code, your billing zip code. Oh, I don't get that very often. Okay. Right. The billing zip code will, will I get also that sometimes, be yeah. If you think that, look at it this way. Retail sales in 2015 totaled $22 trillion. By 2020, they expect it to top $27 trillion. This is this is the direction in which our purchasing habits are definitely going, with, without a question, without a question. So how effective, you know, so these chips, yes, they're effective on one level, but not, you can't, it's, it doesn't protect you from everything. And people need to be aware of that. Evan, how about a home chip reader you plug it into your computer yeah that could and perhaps they will do that but then yeah i think they would have to get people make it affordable enough for the average consumer to invest in something like that you, think you can't afford not to use yeah, it well that's what i would think it. yeah you would you would have you would promote it in in that in that context and sort of push it on people yeah. to well, do that what about using things like apple pay isn't that like the next step isn't that meant to be more secure than um, just putting your credit card in every time. It's like you have to log into your Apple Pay or your Chase Quick Pay or something like that. And and Jay, you've spoken about this before, you know, with Google authentication. Yeah, double authentication. Double, you you double your authentication and that, yeah. that cuts it all down very significantly. I would be perfectly fine for every time my credit card gets used, I have to hit an approve button on my cell phone. Yeah. Right? Yeah, it's easy. That, think about it. That would be... Pretty damn good, I would think. Yeah, well, the there card- are, you know, more and more companies are starting to do that. It's just, I They think- are doing that. Jay, it's who's that noisy time. So last week I played this noisy. There was a, a, a little bit more to uh, to hear there, and there was some giveaways, I think. 
uh, especially if you are yeah. familiar with with instruments. That was a. Um, I think I know what that is. That is a herd of elephants who broke into a bean farm. <laughs> uh, boy. All right. So this is actually uh, something called a baritone saxophone. So uh, Ryan Laney, who sent this Whoa, noisy sax. in, he said, many years ago, I wrote a saxophone concerto, which featured a selection at the end where the soloist was free to play an improvised cadenza. The soloist, Ben Cold, ended up using his baritone saxophone to create, as one friend called it, a crazy dinosaur call. So I, I was attracted to this because, my God, it sounded like a didgeridoo. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. And I, yep. you know, I just thought the voice of a didgeridoo was so different than any other instrument I had heard, and to hear someone mimic that through a a, a a saxophone to me was remarkable. And the guy, you know, clearly had massive skills to be able to manipulate his instrument that well. Interestingly, a lot of people wrote in and said, "Well, first off, uh, the worst guess was from Joe Conway, who said that sounds a bit like a 25 millimeter Gatling cannon from an F-35 Joint Strike fighter being test fired." <laughs> what? Oh, <No>. okay. <laughs> nope. Great. I I suspect that he could have even sent this in for a different noisy. Maybe. Uh, yeah. Or he'll just send yeah. it in every week until eventually he's right. <laughs> yeah, because I will find that sound. <laughs> I will play that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I did get a uh, kill him. A, a notable guess, and this this is the theme that I got. Gary Mullen sent in this uh, answer. It's a Tesla coil pretending to be a didgeridoo. Um, <laughs> Whoa, Tesla! And so I got a ton of that's a Tesla, a Tesla coil, and I'm like, oh my god, they're crazy. And then I really thought about it, and I re-listened to the noisy this week, and I totally get why they think it was a Tesla coil. And if you mm-hmm. ever hear hear any kind of notes being played out of a Tesla coil, they have a way to do it which is very interesting if you've never heard music being played through a Tesla coil. Yup, it actually does kind of sound like that. I could totally see why people were guessing that. So not not a bad guess, Gary, but that wasn't the correct guess. Uh, the correct guess actually uh, was sent in by Staffan Pfaff. Evan, the guy's name is Staffan Pfaff. Staffan no, Pfaff. <laughs> no, it can't be. <laughs> Staffan Allender, like I, look, the guy's email is Staffan Faf. The winner from last week, I believe the man's name is Staffan Allender, and he said, "Hi, it's a saxophone playing multiphonic overtones. I'm not sure about the size of the instrument, but, but my guess is that it's a baritone sax, or possibly a bass, or even a contrabass saxophone." Whoa. He said, "This is a common technique used by musicians in the improvised music scene. It's mainly used as an effect to achieve multiple tonality on a single reed instrument simultaneously." Very cool. Yes, very cool. Even cooler. Look up contrabass or contrabass saxophone on YouTube. Enough said. So that was a really cool noisy. Thanks for sending that in, Ryan. I thought that was really interesting. I also like the fact that he wrote the music. So this week's noisy. This week's noisy was sent in by a listener named Harlan. Let me know what you think of it. One of those British police sirens. <laughs> it's drunk. It's a drunk British police officer. Yeah, so what the hell was that? Interesting. Have you heard that before? I guarantee you that there are certain people that have heard that one before. So if you have any idea or you listened to or heard of a cool noisy this week, email me at WTN at theskepticsguide.org. Yeah, contrabass saxophone is freaking huge. Yeah, it's basically huge. a... 
A saxophone times 10. It's, it's like bigger order, than a person. Okay. Yeah. All right. We do. We have a name that logical fallacy this week. These are always fun. This one comes from Jonathan Jerry from Montreal, Canada. And Jonathan writes, I want to know if the following is a formal logical fallacy or an appeal of some sort. It goes like this, because you were wrong on this one point, you are wrong on all of your points. The person arguing dismisses all arguments on a particular topic because they poked a hole in one of them. I have seen this online with some Trump supporters making the following argument. The left said Trump was like Hitler. Hitler had death camps. Trump doesn't have death camps. Therefore, Trump isn't Hitler. And every other criticism leveled at Trump can be dismissed in one fell swoop. What do you guys think? So what do you guys think? Are there any logical uh, fallacies in there? Absolutely. Well, I was I was thinking uh, I found one that was so only loosely uh, seems to apply, but I never heard of it. Appeal to the stone, argumentum ad lapidem, which is dismissing dismissing a claim as absurd without demonstrating proof for its absurdity. But that's very loose. I found a better one though. I think it might be just false equivalence, describing a situation of logical and apparent equivalence when in fact there is none. So what's the false equivalence here? That if, if one point is wrong, all of the, all subsequent points are wrong as well. That they're equivalent in their wrongness. I don't think so. They came from the same person. Eh, it's kind of nasty. Nah. I don't think that captures what the, the logic here. Well, I mean, it's a couple of things, right? There's yeah. probably one that's true to this. But first of all, it is a straw man argument, right? Uh, what's the straw man? The left said Trump was like Hitler. Okay. Hitler had death camps. Trump doesn't have death camps. Therefore, Trump isn't Hitler. Well, nobody said Trump is Hitler. So um, unless that's just a typo. But if one person is saying Trump is like Hitler, and then they're saying, well, he doesn't have death camps, so he's not Hitler. It's like, yeah, I didn't say he was Hitler. I said he was like Hitler. Yeah, taken literally. Yeah, um, <laughs> like, that's very different. Um, so there's that one. But then it's almost like a reverse slippery slope to me. Does that Is make sense? Is it a post hoc, Steve? I thought I, thought I heard a post hoc in there. Well, you guys are all over the place. <laughs> 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 all right. Let me tell you what I think is going on here. Okay. I think Kara was maybe the closest with the straw man, but there's a very specific kind in here. So let's mm. back up a little to the top. So first of all, Jonathan, these are all informal logical fallacies, not formal logical fallacies, just to be clear on that one technical point. So dismissing an argument because you can poke a hole in especially d dismissing like the bigger argument because you can dismiss you can poke a hole in it is the fallacy fallacy right so essentially you're saying because i found a flaw in your argument uh, your conclusion uh, is wrong. wrong yeah but that's not true you can use an invalid argument to support a conclusion which happens to be true it's just that the argument is invalid right so the argument doesn't support the conclusion but it doesn't make the conclusion wrong yeah. So, but that's very common in online arguing. I have found is that people oh, yeah. see. Oh, is there any way I could find poke any hole in what you're saying, and then I'll use that to dismiss your conclusion and, in fact, all of your arguments. So that's basically the fallacy, fallacy, and it's called that because usually people are not the, the hole they're trying to poke in your argument is to is to frame it in such a way that it sounds fallacious. You know, mm -hmm. like you say, yeah, well, the scientific consensus says that you know the planet's warming. They'll say that's an argument from authority. Therefore, everything you said is wrong. Yeah. Um, and also, it's not even in this specific example, it's not even poking a hole in the argument. Because if you're saying Trump is like Hitler and you don't finish the sentence with how or why, pointing out that Hitler had death camps and Trump doesn't, it's like, yeah, well, he wasn't like Hitler in that way, but he was like Hitler in all these other ways. Yeah, so 
<laughs> so that foul, that's the second fallacy in here. And that is essentially it is a uh, invalid dismissal or denial of an analogy. So um, there is a logical fallacy of a false analogy mm-hmm. where you you say that two things are analogous when in fact they're not analogous. That's a logical fallacy. But in this case, and this happens a lot as well, it's a false, false analogy, meaning that you're saying something's a false analogy when actually it's quite a valid analogy, but you're declaring it false because it's not true in every respect. Gotcha. So, and anal- so when you're saying that A is analogous to B, you're not saying that A is identical to B because if it were identical to B, it wouldn't be analogous. It would be B. You know what I mean? Exactly. So, yeah. No yeah. one. You know, I don't want to sort of harp on the Trump Hitler thing because you know that's you well, know that's lo- very loaded. Used. That's the example he's using. But I mean, you know, it's, it's very loaded. But you could use any. You know, this comes up with all sorts of analogies. But we'll we'll sticking with that one. If people say, "Oh, Trump is like Hitler," they're not saying he is Hitler or that he's mm-hmm. like Hitler in every way. That he's exactly like Hitler. You. you so you have to say, well, what is the actual analogy they're making? They might be saying that there is some aspect of Trump's behavior or his demeanor or his strategy that is similar to the same feature in somebody else like Hitler, right? So that's the analogy. Saying that it's different in some other way that wasn't implied in the analogy does not invalidate the analogy, right? It, sure. Yeah. It depends on you have to decide. This takes this. There's no real formula for this. It's just you have to know how analogies work. You know what I mean? (laughs) So is the does the analogy inform our understanding of this in some way? Is there some connection that you could be made in process and logic and premise or whatever in something that there could still be differences? So I do. I use analogies all the time. They're not identical. It's just that's that why they're analogies. Like, that's why they're analogies. Like I might say, yeah, like healthcare freedom laws and academic freedom laws are are similar. They're analogous because they're following the same logic. But of course, they're different in a whole slew of ways. That doesn't invalidate the analogy. Um, so that's the that's the other I think core fallacy. And then they're using that that uh, analogy denial, if you will as a basis for a fallacy fallacy to dismiss everything. Mm. The only other fallacy that I think might be in here somewhere is the poisoning the well, where you're saying that, oh, you, you made a mistake or you said something that was not valid. Therefore, everything you say is tainted now. I could dismiss anything I want yeah. because it's not that you made this one error. It's that everything you say is, is not um, reliable. And that's really what it sounds like our listener was asking, right? That yeah. that really is what it comes down to. If I make this one claim and they say, oh, you're wrong on that one claim, then you must be wrong about everything. So and that's also the opposite of the principle of charity, right? Yes, which is what we should all be using. Which is what we should all be using is, you know, don't try to poke holes in the other person's argument or find some way that you can frame it or you could justify interpreting it in such a way that it's maximally negative and then and then use that to dismiss everything. But you should be giving the other person the best case scenario. You should be giving them the benefit of the doubt and and framing 
their argument in the best possible light. Because if you can argue against that, then you're probably on solid ground. If you have to attack a straw man, that that says that your position is weak. Doesn't mean that their position is weak. But spending a lot of time in comments on Facebook, et cetera, this is this is basically par for the course, right? This is what a lot of people are doing a lot of the time is this kind of very sloppy arguing. Well, everyone, we're going to take a quick break from our show to talk about our sponsor this week, Blue Apron. If you're like me and you have no idea how to cook, you need a little (laughs) bit of help, going to the grocery store is a huge pain. Blue Apron is perfect for you because you can log online, you can pick the great recipes that you want, and they will ship you a box full of just the food that you need, along with an easy-to-follow, full-color recipe card, and you'll be cooking with your family in no time. Yeah, the beauty of it is, like, you don't even have to measure anything. It just You might have to chop up a couple of things here and there, but you follow the recipe. It's all there. There's no waste, which is the other cool thing I like about this. You, know, you buy an onion. You don't use the whole thing. You put it in the refrigerator, and you chuck out the rest of it a week later because it's stinking things up. It's just convenient. And also, the thing I can't believe is how economical it is because you're cooking really f- – awesome fresh food at home and it costs less than going to a restaurant a lot less than going to a restaurant so go ahead and check out this week's menu get your first three meals for free that's with free shipping by the way and you go to blueapron.com slash sgu and that is blueapron.com slash sgu that's 10 bucks per person all right guys let's get back to the show We are joined now by Acting Chairman Maureen Olhausen of the Federal Trade Commission. Maureen, uh, welcome to the Skeptic's Guide. Excellent. Uh, thank you. I'm really delighted to join you. So uh, for our listeners you know, who may not be intimately uh, familiar with the FTC and, and many of which are not even from the United States, uh, can you tell us a little bit about what the FTC is and how you conceive its its core mission. Uh, the Federal Trade Commission is an independent bipartisan agency. We have no, uh, we have five members, no more than three are from the same political party, and the uh, current presidential administration picks who the chair is. Our core mission is protecting consumers in two ways. We police against unfair and deceptive acts or practices. That's our consumer protection authority, and we also have antitrust authority where we ensure that consumers get the benefits of competitive markets. Yeah, I think the antitrust mission is less well-known than the the anti-fraud and consumer protection angle. That's interesting. I, I read uh, some of your recent uh, articles and, and speeches, and let's talk about the antitrust thing first, only because I think that would be fairly quick. Your The philosophy that you have articulated so far is one of regulatory humility, Tell us about that. So regulatory humility is my name for the idea that we need to act uh, with an understanding of the limits of our knowledge, the ability to predict the future. Uh, we are not always very good at predict, uh, predicting, and we want to be sure that we're addressing real harm, that we've got good evidence of that. Typically, in the antitrust area, we're looking for economic evidence, and that whatever remedy we impose will ultimately make consumers better off by protecting competition rather than shutting off new forms of competition that might develop in the marketplace. So when in doubt, don't act rather than impose regulations that maybe have unintended consequences? Exactly. So I often talk about the need to address real harms rather than speculative harms. 
And there are harms that may not have occurred yet that aren't truly speculative. If we know a lot about the market, there are certain markets where we have a very good understanding of how market competition plays out and economics can predict fairly well what might happen, say, if there was a merger between the two um, closest competitors in a marketplace. Uh, mm-hmm. So we certainly can take action and should take action there and do very uh, uh, frequently when it's presented to us. But in areas where we have less knowledge, where there's less certainty, where there's a lot more prediction, we should act with greater caution. And you've also said that you're a strong believer in the free markets to sort things out. Is that right? Absolutely. I think that the free Free market is the first line of defense for consumers. Uh, competition makes other forms of consumer protection less uh, less necessary. We, we may need it from time to time, but a competitive market often presents consumers with more information, better products, greater innovation, more convenience. And so uh, comp- keeping markets competitive is a very, very important mission uh, that protects consumers' uh, interests overall. Let's turn to more of the health, the, the fraud prevention and, again, protecting consumers by giving them adequate information. So part of the motivation for this interview was a recent uh, FTC decision regarding the regulation of homeopathic products, uh, which we were very happy about, actually. Um, you, I don't know if you are well aware of the fact that I'm uh, the editor of Science-Based Medicine and you actually quoted us in the decision we were very happy with the fact that you said, okay, you know, homeopathic products need to now require evidence for the claims that they're making on the label. So my question for you is, you know, what, what, what were your personal thoughts about that specific decision by the FTC? And how far do you think that's going to go? I mean, how much is the FTC really going to be able to hold the homeopathy industry to that kind of standard? The FTC decided to take a look uh, at homeopathic products given their, um, the vast growth of these products' popularity in the marketplace. And so we did a workshop in 2015, and we followed that by a report with a policy statement. And the idea of that, uh, of what we um, uh, said in the policy statement, the, the basic theme of the policy statement was, if an entity is going to make claims about a product's ability to treat diseases, then it has to have adequate substantiation to show that it products it, that product works for that. And that is the standard we apply across all products, homeopathic or otherwise, very consistently. And so in this policy statement, we said, well, that same standard should apply to homeopathic products. It applies to over-the-counter drugs. It applies to dietary supplements. It applies to other products that are put forward making claims about health benefits to consumers. So we said that same standard should apply to homeopathic products. But the challenge with homeopathic products is that uh, they are based on a, a, the- a medical theory that from the late um, uh, from the 1700s, and there are no valid studies using current scientific methods showing that these products are effective. So, what do you do there? How do you deal with that? Uh, my view is always: we should not be taking choices away from consumers. We should be giving consumers the information they need to make good choices. For themselves, or at least have the information at hand. So that is what we worked on through this policy statement. We said, well, if you're going to make these types of you know, uh, health benefit claims, curing or uh, treating uh, some conditions, uh, medical conditions, 
you have to either have that scientific evidence showing that's effective or you have to convey to consumers the fact that these claims are based on these theories for which there are no valid current scientific uh, studies showing that they're effective. So consumers have that information. If then they want to go ahead and try the product anyway, or they just have a different belief, that's fine. But we wanted to be sure they had that information. So, yeah, I mean, that's that's where it gets interesting. And I understand uh, that it may not be within the FTC's mandate to, you know, again, as you say, take choices away from consumers. But homeopathy is a very interesting test case because the scientific community is pretty united in their opinion that it is 100% pure snake oil. You know, there, there really isn't any possible effect from a homeopathic product. It, it, it's literally a magic potion. So is there ever a context where, you know, essentially the entire industry is 100% fraudulent that there, so what, what is the benefit to a consumer of, of having the choice to buy a homeopathic product and, or put another way, is there ever a situation in which a consumer is not harmed by buying a demonstrably worthless health product? Well, one of the things that we do when we're evaluating health claims about products, uh, uh, to say what type of evidence is necessary to a substantiate a claim. So we look at, and this is across products, we look at the type of claim, the product, the consequences of a false claim, the benefits of a truthful claim, the cost of developing substantiation for the claim, and the amount of substantiation experts believe is reasonable. So using that sliding scale, for example, the FTC has taken action uh, against products uh, that were false um, cancer treatment products, right? Cancer, you know, mm -hmm. cures. And we said, well, in that case, I mean, the, the, the consequence of a false claim is very serious. You have someone avoiding getting effective cancer treatment uh, because they think well, the time it was a shark's cartilage yeah. would, would work. Uh, so, so we challenge that. And, and then we say, well, or was the product itself harmful? Did it carry some kind of risk with it? Uh, so I think that that is where we might actually go ahead. We, we don't have the authority to ban products. I mean, we're not the Food and Drug Administration, right. uh, but we could bring enforcement enforcement actions. Um, and I think that for um, homeopathic products, our policy statement, I will say, is only limited to um, uh, disease conditions that resolve spontaneously with or without specific treatment. So that's the kind of thing like you've got pink eye or you have a little rash or something like that. We're, the, we're not, our policy statement doesn't apply to serious disease claims. And that could mm -hmm. be in a different, that would certainly be in a different category because the risks of the false claim uh, would be much higher than for something that if untreated would would resolve on its own, perhaps taking, you know, a little bit of longer time. Yeah. So I mean definitely the the harm is greater, the the more serious the illness that is being claimed. But you know, if you apply the principle of humility that, that you were endorsing where when we don't really know uh, what's going to happen, maybe we have to be more cautious. I would I could argue in this case that the downstream harm of essentially, you know, selling magical potions in the pharmacy alongside drugs, even with implied claims, uh, is huge because then people learn 
bizarre notions about health and disease. They, they, and I know from talking to many, many people about this, there's an implied endorsement. They think, well, hey, you know, they couldn't be selling it packaged in this way in the pharmacy if it were complete nonsense. But in fact, that that's incorrect. It's an incorrect assumption. They are doing that. So I guess my point is that there's a lot of downstream harm that comes even if they are selling homeopathic products for more benign conditions, like let's say the flu, like homeopathic arnica for the flu uh, or acylococcinum. I mean, that's like fairy dust diluted out of existence. It's basically a magic potion. It's being sold. There's a certain implied endorsement of that uh, by the government because it's allowed to be sold. So how do you ever account for this sort of meta harm that could come from from uh, industries like this that are allowed to operate and sell products that with implied health claims? Well, a couple you your your question raises a couple issues. First, yeah. I want to point out that we are not the only actor in this space. And in 1988, the FDA issued a compliance policy guide entitled Conditions Under Which Homeopathic Drugs May Be Marketed. And it permitted marketers to distribute um, over-the-counter homeopathic products without demonstrating their effectiveness um, as long as, you know, they're limited to these uh, self-limiting disease conditions. But they also require them to have at least one major over-the-counter indication for use. So the FDA is required. In, on the one hand, requiring some indication for use. So we have to act you know, with that regulatory guidance from our sister agency in mind. Uh, so with that being the case, and of course the First Amendment, uh, we, it would be difficult, I think, for us to absolutely prohibit the sale of, you know, uh, of these, these products. So instead, we've taken the path of trying to give consumers this additional information. And um, one of the things that we're going to do moving forward is look at the net impression of the homeopathic advertising to ensure that it adequ adequately conveys to consumers the extremely limited nature of the health uh, claim being asserted and that it is based on these theories that have no uh, modern scientific basis. I mean, if consumers understand all of that and they still want to move ahead and buy the product, ultimately it resolves to an, you know, that the ability of a consumer to make that choice for him or herself. Has any of the changes that, that you guys have made had any measurable impact? It's still early days. So this only came out in, uh, I think it was November. Yep. of uh, 2016. And the first thing that we're doing is working towards educating the industry uh, and, uh, you know, retailers about what is expected here. Um, so we're working with the industry on a voluntary basis to foster compliance. Uh, and then we're going to continue that effort. And then at some point, we might consider enforcement actions if we think uh, the homeopathic um, industry, drug industry, right? This doesn't, I uh, also want to be clear, this is for over-the-counter products. This doesn't apply to um, the practice of medicine or homeopathic yeah. uh, medicine, what, uh, you know, someone can do in their, in their uh, doctor's office. So we're educating industry, we'll monitor for compliance, and then down the road consider uh, what steps might uh, be necessary. Can I ask, what does that like? What does that compliance actually involve? You know, what is the real world effect? What can consumers 
expect to see on the bottle that is different than it was previously? Right. So they're going to have to see on the bottle and possibly, you know, in, in any other advertising that would make the, the health claim. So they're going to, there's going to have to be a disclaimer that effectively communicates, uh, first, that there's no scientific evidence that the product works. And second, that the product's claims are based only on theories of homeopathy from the 1700s that aren't accepted by most modern medical experts. Uh, and then we'll look to make sure that the disclosures stand out and that they're in close proximity to the product's a message about effectiveness. Individual producers, uh, manufacturers will have to decide how they want to make that a disclaimer, but we have to make sure that it is uh, effective. I'm going to pivot a little bit away from homeopathy because I want to dive a little bit deeper on this issue of it sounds like, and from reading some of your decisions, that a lot hinges on trying to anticipate what a typical consumer might think based upon the kind of advertising that's being made. And I specifically want to talk about your statement uh, regarding the Palm Wonderful decision, which was the, the pomegranate juice products. For quick background, they claim that they're loaded with antioxidants, and then there's a lot of implied claims about the effectiveness of antioxidants. Can you summarize your your opinion in this case? So that was the case in which the agency challenged claims that Palm Wonderful had made about uh, the health benefits of pomegranate juice. And our um, concerns were that these were being kind of o over over uh, overrepresented, right? There was some evidence, but how convincing was that evidence to show that pomegranate juice could treat, you know, heart disease and, um, uh, you know, other other serious uh, ailments. Ultimately, we found that um, of some of the ads, not all the ads, but some of their ads did convey a much stronger claim than they were able to substantiate using the scientific studies that existed uh, at the time about pomegranate juice. Uh, and so the commission ultimately found liability for false and misleading claims in these ads. And I agreed that a, a certain subset of those ads did convey these uh, false and misleading claims. Uh, where I differed from my colleagues, though, was where they said as a remedy for these claims that the company had to have two randomized controlled clinical trials. And two RCTs uh, is the standard for drugs. In the U.S., uh, but this is not a drug. This is a safe product, a juice. So going back, I you know I I read to you the um, the factors that we consider about the level of substantiation that we need, and one of the things is the, um, the the product itself and whether it's a risky product. So if you have a product like a juice that somebody is could just add to their diet uh, and it could have some benefits, and there has been some, you know, evidence, clinical evidence showing that it has benefits. My view was that a, a drug level standard for that, a two RCT standard was too high a standard because what might, what would likely happen is then uh, the, the makers of, you know, or the uh, producers of different food products might not invest in the science to substantiate these claims if they had to do it to such a high level and that because the risk but the risk to consumers of drinking a juice was rather low 
So my view was that one randomized control trial was sufficient. We didn't need two to show it. And so when uh, this got argued before the D.C. Circuit, the court agreed with my with my view, that the 2RCT standard, which is for drugs, was too high a standard to impose on a safe product uh, like a food. Yeah, so that's, again, that, that's interesting, and uh, I want to explore that a little bit further because, you know, from the, the sort of scientist-physician end, we're involved with protecting the consumer from health fraud as well, but we have, I think, a slightly different approach. There was one statement that you made in your uh, – one one sentence you made in your statement about this. Uh, that you said, essentially, it seems unlikely that a consumer would interpret a claim that a food or a supplement that it because it is, it's effective in preventing a disease that it could be used to treat that disease. And you thought that that was over interpreting. But I, ha- I have to disagree with you because in my extensive experience, that's exactly what people do. They They completely conflate claims made for prevention and treatment. In fact, I've prescribed patients preventive treatments that they used incorrectly. I said, this is you take this to prevent something, and they took it to treat it once it occurred. So even with direct instruction from a physician, that is a very common mistake that people make. So first of all, what do you think about that? And Again, getting it seems like you want to err on the side of, well, unless we have extrinsic evidence, right? Unless we can prove that consumers are going to interpret it this way, um, we should assume that they're going to be reasonable and not interpret it that way. But is that asking for too high a standard of evidence? And who's going to do those studies to show that the average reasonable consumer is going to misinterpret those claims that way? Again, I think a lot of this has to be tied to the claim itself and to the underlying product. Also, the cost of doing the tests and, um, uh, you know, the kind of the benefits of the truthful claim and the, the risks of the, of the false, the false claim. So there's no, I don't think there's a single answer, uh, in, in that, in that regard. So, for example, in nutrition science, one of the things that we have seen is that that has migrated quite a bit over time, right? right. You know, uh, eggs are bad. No, eggs are fine. Um, you know, this, uh, you know, uh, uh, margarine is what you want. No, margarine is bad for you, right? So um, I think that this is a kind of a fast-moving area or has, you know, has been an, an, an area with a, a lot of change in it. And one of the problems in the food area is if you make the standard very high, it is not like the pharmaceutical area where you have a patent for that molecule or that, that, that drug that you've created and all your the individual drug company's investment can be recouped through selling that patented product for you know X number of years. When you make the standard for foods too high, the like the the, the too many tests, what happens is you reduce the incentive for anyone in the industry to engage in that research because it's very expensive for you to engage in it. Say you, you know, you want to make a claim about health benefits of carrots. So you invest, you know, you're the carrot guy, you invest all the money to make this claim. Carrots are a safe product. We don't have to worry about that. They're part of a normal diet. Um, but you invest all of this. Uh, and then what happens is you can't 
keep the benefit of that if you show carrots have this extra benefit. Every other carrot manufacturer comes comes in. So one of the things I think we need to keep in mind as we're thinking about things is very much carefully the types of claims and uh, those kinds of things. So maybe this is a very roundabout answer just to say there's no way to just say, well, we know like in one case it may be this uh, and it applies to, to everything. Each product, each claim, each risk, you, you need to look at it on, on more of this kind of sliding scale, putting all those pieces together. So um, as for who the reasonable consumer is, we have, you know, that's what we try to um, pitch it at at the FTC. That's the standard. What would the average consumer take away? You always have more knowledgeable and less knowledgeable consumers. And the concern is if you are always pitching it at the less knowledgeable consumers, what you're going to do is have less information put into the marketplace. Maureen Olhausen, Acting Chairman of the Federal Trade Commission. Thank you so much for giving us your time. It was a fascinating discussion. Great. Th thanks so much, Steve. Well, everyone, we're going to take a quick break from our show, uh, actually to talk about our advertising company, Podcast One. These are the guys who find advertisers for the SGU. And Podcast One and we need to ask you for a quick favor. Uh, they are running a survey on their website to help get better demographic information about our listeners so that we can more accurately target our ads. The funny thing about that, though, is that we reject probably about 60 to 70% of the advertisers they bring to us because of pseudoscience. <laughs> or just something that's even a little dodgy. But, you know, the, the company could be doing something where they have, like, a decent or very good product, but their marketing is steeped in pseudoscience. You know, yeah. it's like, hey, this is a great product that everybody needs, and you would probably buy it if you heard it on our podcast, but you won't because we won't put the ad on because they have to say, oh, and the outer layer of this product is magic. <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> you don't have to do that. It's a great product all by itself. And guys, even beyond that, you want to make sure that the ads that we're reading on the show are meaningful and targeted towards you? Do you have children? You know, what What do you spend most of your money on? What is your gender? What are your interests? We don't want to be reading ads for things that nobody in our audience is interested in. So this will help us understand you so that you don't roll your eyes every time we read an ad. <laughs> I think we've yeah. done a good job, though, so far. <laughs> we've weeded out so much. Yeah. And this is just going to help us narrow it down that much further. So it's really important that you take five minutes out of your day to do this quick survey. So if you don't want to roll your eyes and you want to take the survey, go to podcastone.com slash my survey or podcastone.com and just click on the survey banner. All right, guys, let's get back to our show. It's time for science or fiction. Each week I come up with three science news items or facts, two real and one fake a rooney, and I challenge my expert skeptics to tell me which one they think is the fake. No theme this week, so just some three regular news items. We'll see how you all do. All right, here we go. Number one. Scientists report the first discovery of a white dwarf pulsar, the only one known just 380 light years from Earth. All right, number two, Hebrew University archaeologists report that they have uncovered the 12th Dead Sea Scroll Cave with intact jars containing previously undiscovered scrolls. 
And item number three, a new study finds that, with little provocation, two-thirds of subjects engaged in trolling behavior in online comments. Kara, go first. All right. First discovery of a white dwarf pulsar. I have no idea if that is not common. But are white dwarfs, they're small, right? Aren't pulsars super, super dense? But they are small. I don't know if white dwarves are dense. Ah! I don't know if 380 light years from Earth is really close by. I know. It's terrible. <laughs> I'm um, it seems reasonable. I don't think white dwarfs are generally pulsars. That I know. So I just don't know if we've already found one or if it seems ludicrous that there would be one. Uh, Hebrew University archaeologists report that they've uncovered. Oh, God, I hate this stuff. The Dead Sea Scroll cave with intact jars containing previously undiscovered scrolls. And with little provocation, two-thirds of subjects engaged in trolling behavior in online comments. With a little provocation. I don't know. I'm gonna I'm gonna reverse Occam this one. <laughs> <laughs> I think that the I have the feeling that once a troll, always a troll. That like not everybody just wants to be a troll, but there's just a certain sect of the population that is troll-like and you might be able to force a few more people into troll-like behavior but two-thirds sounds big to me and so i am and and i think historically when we look at the psychological data from the things like the bystander effects study you know the where the woman got like raped in front of everybody once we really started to look at that we realized that like it actually wasn't really in front of everybody. And a lot of other things that were reported were kind of wrong and we overblew that conclusion. So I think I'm going to go with the trolling one as the fiction for those reasons. Okay, Evan? Well, the white dwarf pulsar, only 380 light years from Earth. The question on my mind is, why did we only now discover this? Don't you think? Are they hard to detect? I thought pulsars maybe stand out make themselves easier to detect because they are pulsars, especially only 380 light years from Earth. But a white dwarf pulsar, maybe that that's why. Um, if it's the only one known, they didn't know what to look for. So that one might be right. Then the Hebrew University archaeologists, they uncovered a 12th Dead Sea scroll cave with intact jars containing previously undiscovered scrolls. Gosh, wouldn't that have made huge headlines? I, I think that's that's not insignificant. And then the last one, a little provocation, two-thirds of subjects engaged in trolling behavior in online comments. Okay, well, I guess you got to define trolling behavior. That might be a, a broader paintbrush stroke than than we realize because there's, I think, lots of different ways or lots of different things you can, can consider trolling. I'll say, yeah, Dead Sea Scroll Cave. I don't – because, again, I, I think this would have been enormous news as opposed to interesting news. Okay, Jay? This one about the white dwarf, the big deal about that one is that uh, it's a white dwarf pulsar. You know, 380 light years is not is not close, uh, but it's not, you know, fantastically far away either, but it's still very, See, very far See, this is away. why I'm always confused <laughs> because of what you said right then. It's all depending on your what you had to, for lunch that day, Kara, to be honest with you. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, you know, I, I think that's science. I think we found one. Sure, why not? Uh, this one about the the twelfth Dead Sea Scroll, wonderful find, um, dying of interest if it's true, and I see no reason why um, this didn't happen. Again, I mean it, it's um, it's totally plausible, and there's archaeologists you know looking like crazy all over the place, 
Um, so I don't see why this one wouldn't be science. Um, but this one about the trolls is the is the one that I'm questioning. Uh, you know, finds that with little provocation, two thirds of subjects engaged in trolling behavior in online comments. I mean, I personally don't find that to be accurate. I don't think that 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 many people would would become a troll. Uh, there's something about that one I don't like. I think that one's a fiction. And Bob, yeah, a white dwarf pulsar. Holy crap! Where did that come from? Never heard of that <laughs> ever. Um, that's amazing. Why is it pulsing? It's just a white dwarf. So that's about that's about um, as big as the Earth. But a, a pulsar, which is normally a neutron star, which normally is a you know can be a pulsar. I mean, we're talking you know as big as a city. So this is bizarre and awesome. I hope that's true. Three hundred and eighty light years. That's nothing. That's right down the damn street. That's so close. Thank um, you, Bob. So that's <laughs> yeah. I mean, you're, we're not even in, in you know in over a thousand light years. I mean, this is very very close. I um, mean, we, we see stars and, and galaxies from millions or billions of light years away. Whoa! So this is this is this is close as hell. Um, let's see the troll. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, maybe a little provocation, but. Um, but the, the right kind of provocation, sure, I can kind of see that, um, possibly. But uh, the, um, the 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 Dead Sea Scroll ones, though, yeah, that that would be huge. More Dead Sea Scrolls, that would be immense. We that would be on, like on the news, and we'd mm-hmm. have you know we'd had news item pop ups on our computers right now. Holy yeah. crap, new Dead Sea! That that would be major. Uh, they probably just found an empty cave. Uh, so I, I'm going to say that that one uh, is fiction. Yeah, Bob. Okay, so Bob and Evan think the Dead Sea Scroll cave is the fiction, and Jay and Kara thinks that the online trolling is the fiction, correct? So you Mm -hmm. all believe in number one, so we'll start there. Scientists (laughs) report the first discovery of a white dwarf pulsar, the only one known, just 380 light years from Earth. You all think this one is science, and this one is science. Bob, you haven't heard about this? What are you years. pretending? Yeah, I, I, yeah, I heard about it, but it, I mean, <laughs> I, I would, I would have said the same shit if I had I read it or not. Yeah, yeah, I would have been more shocked. Though. That's Holy right. Holy crap! So yeah, so so pulsars are neutron stars, right? Mm-hmm. They are which are city sized or even smaller. As Bob said, a white dwarf is a star collapsed down to the, about the size of the Earth. Neutron stars even further, and. Uh, you know, some of them, if they're rapidly rotating and they're pointed at us, they're, they become pulsars because they're shooting out beams because they're magnetic fields. They're, they're shooting out beams of radiation like a lighthouse, right? And then they swing around. If they were pointing at us, we'll see them pulse with a regular cycle. But we've theorized about this for over 50 years apparently but never found a white dwarf that was pulsating like a pulsar. But now we have. Um, and yeah, 380 light years away is damn close. But you'd be surprised how many stars are within that distance. Now, I yeah. couldn't find, oh, yeah. I couldn't find exactly 380 light years, like how many stars, but I found how many stars are within 250 light years of the Earth. What do you think? Uh, 12. 12? I'd say 1,000. 250. <laughs> I'd say um, I don't think it's that many. Hundreds. I don't know what I'm talking about, but I'm going to stick with twelve thousand. Two hundred and sixty thousand. <laughs> oh, that's ah, a quarter huge. of a million. Yes. Price wow. is right, rules. I'm that's the thing. 
It's, All right, Kara. It's, it's well surprising done. <laughs> because again, you, you're thinking, you have to think three dimensionally. The yeah. volume increases dramatically at, with the radius, right? So, yeah, 250 Damn. light years, it's 260, which means there's probably millions within 380 light years. Yeah, the fact that it took a long time to find this, even though it was so close, is actually not surprising given the number of stars. We but pulsars. Have. How many pulsars are within? But that still, distance? we got to look at it, right? You got to look at it to see that it's pulsating. Not, and not only but that, because, it's, like because a it's a white dwarf pulsar, I suspect, I don't know, but I suspect that it may be weaker than a, than a conventional pulsar. Perhaps. Yeah, so that would make sense. Mm-hmm. In fact, we could only see it because it has a red dwarf companion oh. and it's shooting its beam at the red dwarf and that is what's pulsating. So uh, really? Seeing, so it's a reflection? Yeah, it's a lot weaker. Well, no, it's actually, it's literally getting brighter. So the red dwarf is getting brighter and dimmer and brighter and dimmer whenever the, its companion white dwarf is shooting its beam at it. And so hmm. every couple of minutes it goes through this cycle hmm. of, uh, cause it, but based on the period of the, you know, the rotation of the white dwarf. But Isn't they're actually cool? measuring it off the red door. Yeah, yeah, yeah apparently. Yeah. Right. So it's so it's essentially uh, undetectable unless it's actually interacting with a, another. Well, another I don't know that. I don't know if, if it were aimed right at us. You know, it, it could might be detectable. I don't know, but it is definitely. Well, a lot that's dimmer. true. It's a that's lot true. It, it does a, kind of have to be aimed at us. <laughs> yeah, but this one is aimed at its companion star, and we could see that changing. I've never heard Steve of a, of a pulsar doing that. I mean, maybe I just don't know, but. Uh, pulsars could do a similar thing. It might not be, you know, just like this. It might not be aimed at us, but it could be causing a, a nearby, uh, you know, stellar object to uh, to brighten. Yeah, that's Ooh. neat. I wonder. Gas cloud or something. Very cool. Let's go to number two. Hebrew University archaeologists report that they have uncovered the a 12th Dead Sea Scroll cave with intact jars containing previously undiscovered scrolls. Bob and Evan, you think this one is the fiction. Jay and Kara, you think this one is science. And this one is the fiction. It yeah, is baby. the fiction. <laughs> Damn. So, Bob, you're correct. I suspect you read it. They did find an empty cave. But they're pretty sure. Wait, why is that news? Because the cave was a Dead Sea Scroll cave. Yes, clearly, so, obviously. How do they know? Because, oh, there was a sign. There was a broken sign. Jo- broken <laughs> jars, pieces of, of rope that you wrap around scrolls, and a little tiny piece of a scroll. Yeah. You know, they actually, um, oh, so there wait, was a, no, if there gar- was a piece of the scroll, then this is not – oh, no, you said intact. No, this is actually, <laughs> this is actually a, it was actually a scroll that they were, I think, preparing. Yeah, there was a piece of leather. On. It was a piece of leather they yeah. were preparing to be a scroll, but it, there was nothing on it. So, so it was basically detritus. It's like District Twelve, sort of in Hunger Games. So found a scroll. Think of it that and way. It said it was the answer to life and everything is ah. Uh, do they, do they uh, think there were scrolls there that got yes. like, robbed? Oh, yeah. Clearly, they were. Yes. Yeah, they must have been taken. Gotcha. And it's horrible. It's horrible. They, you know, it's terrible that they, you know, imagine if they found a dozen scrolls there. Who knows what happens, what happened to the scrolls that were there? They could have been lost or, or, or just, uh, somebody has them somewhere. Don't even know what they have. They, what, what they said in the article. I bet they know what they have. Uh, I mean, well, or maybe they tried to, to examine them and they, and they just disintegrated. You know, they're, they're so fragile. What they have to do, and they mentioned in the article is that they have to actually make a concerted effort 
to to go through every possible cave in that area and come up with possibly you know before you know they could be ransacked if they haven't already been ransacked. Such a loss. So up to this point, they knew of eleven caves, and all of the known Dead Sea Scrolls were they assigned them to which of those 11 caves they thought they came from. Yeah. But now there's a 12th cave. It's like, well, crap. Some of those scrolls may have come from this cave. Now they don't, they're not really sure. The problem is even some of the scrolls we currently have were stolen and then sold on the black market and then eventually you know, came into the possession right, of, so of scientists. But Who knows where they really were. Exactly. But yeah, so people are ransacking these old sites looking for valuable artifacts to sell on the black market. That's that's what the name of the game. And so they're, yeah, they're, the researchers were saying, yeah, we got to find them before they do because they're going to screw everything up. So yeah, and they, may, and they may never come to scientific light. But yeah, but imagine, they- imagine. So the Dead Sea Scrolls are, in case anyone doesn't know, they are documents from a couple thousand years ago that were stored in clay jars uh, in these caves near the Dead Sea, which is why that, that's what they're called. And you you know through examination and x-rays or whatever, they could, act, could actually read them. About a third, I think, a third of the Dead Sea Scrolls are biblical and the other two-thirds are extra-biblical. They're not you – know, Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. I thought they were mostly biblical. It, what is what is extra biblical? Mainly, they're they're from the recipes same time, for hummus, and they yeah they they may be <laughs> they may be about biblical topics, but they're not found in the Bible. They're not in the Torah or the Christian Bible. Oh, so, so that's just a, an arbitrary <laughs> distinction that they're extra. <laughs> they didn't make the final cut. Exactly. That's yeah, all that they're cutting exactly. room floor. Okay. Yeah. 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 But it's funny, Steve. I had just a brief, goofy thought when I was reading that article. Uh, I was like, you know, all this effort and and import placed on basically uh, expansion of the minutia of religious fairy tales. It's like, you know. <laughs> but I mean, I know it has lots of historical significance and everything, and and yeah. and there could be the potential to to discover something really huge and and revealing about the true nature. Of 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 religion or Jesus or whatever, so yeah. yeah, sure it could be fascinating. Yeah. And it was just a well, brief thought I had. It was, it was kind of silly. It's fascinating because it's an old text. That's right. why. Right. Yeah. How much lot, stuff? Lots right. of reasons. How many texts exist really from, text. from that yeah. period? Yeah, they're of linguistic significance. Imagine yeah. you have writings two thousand years old. Sure. These are all from about one hundred thirty-five to one hundred four BCE. Is yeah. how they've dated them? Jeez, incredible um, historical significance. Obviously. Yeah, uh, that's, yeah. that's undeniable. Why did some of them end up in the in the the scriptures and some not? That's interesting to think about that as well. Because right? they didn't know where they were. <laughs> Why didn't they just photocopy <laughs> those? Yeah, photo- yeah, that's right. Yeah. Take- <laughs> okay. All of this means that a new study finds that with little provocation, two-thirds of subjects engaged in trolling behavior in online comments is science. And that's yeah. a, so that was an interesting question. Are trolls – is that a personality thing or is it situational, right? So that was the mm. question the researchers were trying to answer. I th- and The fact that they were able to provoke people into trolling doesn't mean that a lot of trolls are – have a troll personality. I think the answer is both, meaning yeah, that some of the trolls out there they're just trolls. They're they're by personality, by temperament, whatever. But you know the the point that the researchers are making. So what they did was they had two sets of of people. One that took a uh, a 
an online test. One was very hard and one was easy. Uh, and first they validated this process by showing that the people who took the hard test, then when they were assessed for their emotional state, they were annoyed and angry because they were frustrated <laughs> over the difficult test. Yeah. Sorry, I find that funny. They got funny. test rage. <laughs> they, they created basically a fake online article with comments and et cetera that was just for the study. And then, again, from either of those two groups, half of each of the group was – asked to read the article and leave at least one comment, but they were free to leave as many comments as they wanted. And at the at the top of the comments were either neutral comments or were trolling comments. So if you take the people who were both frustrated and had the trolling comments, 68% of them left comments that were deemed by judges, blinded judges, to to be trolling. Whereas much fewer of them did if they were in either of the other groups, if they didn't have the trolling comments or if they weren't frustrated by a hard test. So it shows that the, the, the again, it's one study. We always know these are always one off studies. We, we need to put this in the context of more research. But what this is suggesting is that there is a, there are situational factors that could lead a significant number of people into trolling behavior. And that – I have to say that actually fits my personal experience because I think that people can be trolls in different contexts, you know. like if I you, just think that that's a broad definition of troll. Yeah, but they, they, they came up with an operational definition and they applied it blindly to the posts and like using swear words or making personal attacks. You know, so they had specific criteria. OK. So, yeah, but, I'd be interested to see the construct validity behind that. Like are yeah. they actually measuring trolling or are they just measuring – Angry comments, because those are two different things. Like, I've definitely made angry comments before, but I don't think I've ever trolled right. anyone on the internet. Yeah, yeah. No, you're, you're correct. They had to use some markers for what a trolling post would be. Yeah. Yeah, so they, they specifically mentioned personal attacks, you know. But, gotcha. Yeah, but you're right. There's more nuance there. There's a lot more nuance there that they probably didn't cover with this test. But – like, for example, I could think if you went on to an anti-vax website and were in the comments, I think it'd be very easy to slip into trolling behavior because you're not genuinely engaging with the people there. You're just trying to like show what, what idiots they are, right? Or you might <laughs> think that that's what yeah. you're doing, but, or you might say, I'm just going to show them how absolutely wrong they are. But if you're going into a discussion thinking that your job is to show them how wrong they are, you're probably trolling. Rather than <laughs> I'm going to generally understand and engage with their arguments, you know, that's different. So I, I do think there are some situational aspects to it. And, you know, so I think, you know, that that is interesting. It does mean that we all have to be on our guard about our own behavior and and think about you know, that context. Like if you're, if you're in unfriendly or unfamiliar online territory, you may need to be especially careful with your etiquette because, you know, we're all trolling each other basically is what it comes down to just in different situations. It's like everyone thinks they're a good driver and everyone else, other people are bad drivers, but we're all bad drivers sometimes. You know what I mean? Sure. I, but I would also argue that trolling behavior is, depending on your operational definition, by definition, somewhat anti-skeptical behavior. Because if you are going to en engage as somebody who's trying to be a thoughtful, mindful skeptic, you're not going to make ad hominem attack. You're not going to do all of the things that we're always working toward not doing. I agree, so. but it obviously doesn't mean that we all live up to that. And I think you might feel justified if you're battling it out, you know, again, with science deniers, sure. you know, you might feel justified in taking the gloves or, off, you know. 
Or maybe I'm the one third. Yeah, that's true. And again, I <laughs> think that be in there. Uh, yep. <laughs> I think like one percent of the population are just antisocial assholes, and they're doing a lot of the trolling. It doesn't mean that they don't exist, also. But at the same time, I think there's the situational trolls, um, and then there's probably people who are who are self-aware and polite and constructive all the time. I agree with that as well. The, the, it's the spectrum. And the fact that like two-thirds in the middle are situational trolls I think is probably reasonable. All right, Evan, give us a quote. I believe that we are a story-driven species and that we understand how things are put together in the context of narrative. It's a shame that science hasn't been taught that way in a long time. It's usually the fact completely devoid of any human experience or idea of how the scientists came to that conclusion. And that's a quote from Andrian, who is the wife of Carl Sagan. I thought that sounded Sagan-esque. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah, you can you can kind Sagan of Sagan adjacent. A, right, right, right. Sagan uh, in the Sa- within the Sagan family, I, I suppose is how yeah. you could say it. Yeah. And I mean, look, Carl Sagan, of course, was fam- it became in a way world renowned for putting the story, the history of science, how we know what we know, into. The context of narrative specifically. And, and I and love learning science that wonderful, way. Wonderful, yeah. wonderful. Yeah. Is there, I don't know, is there's a better way or a more. In, I, in, yeah, in, I totally in, agree. A, a way that captures mm-hmm. you any, any, any greater than. Because than I think one big reason is because the way that humans as a species figured our way through the question is recapitulated in how an individual person wrestles with yeah. the same question sort of mm-hmm. you individually go through the same process that we as a species went through many times obviously not always and so by learning like what scientists thought and what they discovered and what they thought next that is it resonates with us and you could learn the science so much better that way there's so many examples of that it's you know you can go you can go so many places with that carl sagan andrian and others so i love that quote good quote evan thank you all right. Well, thank you all for joining me this week. Thanks, Doc. Sure. Thank you. And until next week, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by SGU Productions, dedicated to promoting science and critical thinking. For more information on this and other episodes, please visit our website at theskepticsguide.org, where you will find the show notes as well as links to our blogs, videos, online forum, and other content. You can send us feedback or questions to info at theskepticsguide.org. Also, please consider supporting the SGU by visiting the store page on our website, where you will find merchandise, premium content, and subscription information. Our listeners are what make SGU possible. Uh-huh.